0: Hello, my name is Sandy Adamaitis, the social media director for the Page International Screenwriting Awards, and your host for the Writer's Hangout, a podcast that celebrates the many stages of writing, from inspiration to the first draft, revising, getting a project made, and everything in between. We'll talk to the best and the brightest in the entertainment industry and create a space where you can hang out, learn from the pros, and have fun. Hi, I'm Sandy Adamitis, And I'm
1: Terry Sampson.
0: Today, Terry and I are going to tell you about the life and mysterious death of Ian McIntosh. The sources for this story are an article by Jane Ennis of the London's TV Times. A book that I leaned very, very heavy on is called The... Life and Mysterious Death of Ian McIntosh by Robert G. Folsom and another article called An Unfortunate Accident or a Daring Escape by Robin Beerfield. Born to Annie and James McIntosh, Ian McIntosh grew up in Inner in the Scottish Highlands. His mom was a governess and his father was a naval officer. He had a younger brother named Laurie. I love that name, Laurie. Very pretty. Yes. Um, it has been reported by the McIntosh family that while Ian's father was serving in World War II, his ship was attacked by a German destroyer while on an Arctic convoy run to Russia. A senior officer ordered James McIntosh to seal the fire doors to his engine room to prevent fire spreading to the rest of the ship. Rather than leave his men trapped inside, Ian's dad knocked the officer unconscious and got his men out. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Ian was educated at the Inverness Royal Academy. He was a Boy Scout, and he played sports, including cricket, rugby, and soccer. At 16, Ian taught Sunday school until he left for the military college, Britannia, Royal Navy College, the British equivalent of the United States Naval Academy, in 1958 to train as a Royal Navy officer. Ian graduated on April 26, 1961, and the the very next day, he was assigned to the Light Feet Aircraft Carrier HMS Centaur, based at Aberdeen in Scotland. While in the Royal Navy, Officer Ian's exact duties are still unclear, but it has been surmised that Ian was a spy, an intelligent Alanist, and may have carried out um, a mix of duties. Laurie McIntosh said about his brother, quote, Ian frequently disappeared for long periods, was totally uncontactable. And then just reappeared with no explanation. Unquote. This wasn't the normal pattern for naval officers. During this period of five years, Ian turned out five novels, crime novels or procedurals, crime procedurals. That's, he wrote a lot. On a weekend in 1961, Ian went to dinner at the home of his superior officer, who introduced Ian to his daughter, Sharon. Ian was 20, and she was 12. Thank God. Eight years later, on September 6, 1969, Ian and Sharon married. It worried me the first first time I heard that. Uh, They had two daughters, Zoe and Zemma. Love the name Zemma. Uh, Ian and Sharon eventually divorced, and I'll get into why they divorced a little bit later on. Ian uh, made the transition from books to television look easy. In 1972, he suggested the idea of a naval drama to Admiral Lewin, who Ian once was an aide to. Admiral Lewin served in the Second World War, commanded a destroyer, the Royal Yacht, two frigates, and an aircraft carrier. This this guy was just, he was the boss. He so was the man. The royal yacht. The royal yacht, The yes. queen's yacht. I'm sorry?
1: Would that be the queen's yacht?
0: Yes, yes. Nice. So I guess during the war, he com- commanded the destroyer, and then maybe after the war, went to the yacht, then two frigates and an aircraft carrier. Man, he was first (laughs) sea lord and chief of the naval staff in the late 1970s. This man had power. Yeah, Admiral Lewin liked the idea and the BBC was brought in to produce the series that came to be known as Warship. Admiral Lewin ordered the sea command to provide a Leander class frigate and crew for the production. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? It's just like amazing that that happened. At the time, the Leander class was the most worthy warships the Royal Navy possessed. Ian wrote most of the episodes. All the while, Ian was still carrying out naval duties. Warship was on the air from 1973 to 1974, and it became a hit drawing in 12
1: million people. He's still connected to the Navy mm-hmm. while writing for TV. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah.
0: With Warship, the writing bug had captured Ian, but it would eventually break up his marriage. Laurie, Ian's brother, explained. Quote, when Ian got involved in warship, he still had naval duties along with the extra demands of writing and supervising the production, which meant he worked very long hours. It became just impractical for him to travel back and forth to their home in Hampshire, about a two-hour journey each way. He wanted Sharon to move up to London, but she refused. Unquote. Because... Uh, Hampshire is a b- much better place to bring up children than mm. central London.
1: I'm still stunned at the idea that a guy who is dabbling, if you will, in makeup stuff, I'm making things up every day, right, and turning over to another thing that might happen that day that involved actual navy yeah. stuff. Isn't I that was, wild? Yeah, I can't imagine. Uh, and he's he's in his mid.
0: 30s, I believe wow. at this time. I mean, he's an impressive human being. Yes. Uh, oh, also, I don't, you know, friends have episodes due. You can always tell because you call them up and it's like, can't talk. I can't talk. <laughs> and you're just like, <laughs> okay, got it. I got it. You got yeah, something must, to do. <laughs> he must've been like that all the time. He was like that all the time. Um, in 1976, Ian retired from the Royal Navy and was immediately hired by the Yorkshire Television Company. Ian's first venture was creating Wild Alliance about a crime writer and his wife who done whodunits. Kind of like, um... Heart to heart, I would think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, heart to heart, yeah. Next up was Thundercloud, a comedy adventure depicting the antics at a Royal Navy coastal station in World War Two.
1: Wow. See, so, up to this point, I was down with this guy being able to sort of take these two huge serious ideas, actual life as a Navy commander, mm-hmm. and then writing about that. You yeah, throw funny in there. yeah. <laughs> Now, I'm really impressed. Really
0: impressed. In early spring 1977, a year into his new career as a producer-writer, Ian came up with the idea of a series about a tiny cadre of secret agents he called the Sandbaggers, and wrote up an 11-page outline. The protagonist... Neil Burnside showed Ian's dissatisfaction with uh, political interference into intelligent operations. Uh, It showed the good guys don't also win. And when they do win, it's not always because of their own actions. This was all new, I guess, in, in those days. Also, Burnside goes to great lengths to protect his sandbaggers. But he also doesn't hesitate to risk their lives when the mission is important, the information is good, and they can cover their tracks. Why the group was called the Sandbaggers was never explained, but it may have to do with putting up sandbags as a defense against an incoming flood.
1: Right. To prevent erosion or something like that. Right. Right. Uh, That makes sense to me. I also looked uh, this up. And it said that if you went to the original idea, if you went to an old dictionary, for instance, the original first pass on this would have been, it's a person who uses a sandbag as a weapon. Now, I know that we've gotten all fancy with our guns and uh, exploding stuff. And a guy comes walking at you with a big, heavy sandbag. It looks like you have more time to think out the situation, maybe call the police, feed the police dog whatever you want to do you still got lots of time because he's bringing a big bag to wow. hit you with right
0: yeah oh and that would hurt you know because in the movies i've seen them drop from the theater yeah. from the actor right. exactly that's maybe, always into that. maybe
1: that's how it was done <laughs> yeah. maybe it was a big surprise oh yeah yeah i said the guy them. he didn't know it hit him we figured it out
0: <laughs> we figured it out
1: so in golf there are guys that hustle something. They they act like they can't play well. And then when the betting happens, they play great and win money. It's a trick. I guess, though, they did trick people. and Oh, yes. I think spy work is all about trickery. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes.
0: Um, the first episode of The Sandbaggers aired September 18th, 1979. It was a hit. The New York Times called Sandbaggers the best spy series in television history and the first TV series to present espionage, realistically, as sword series of political struggles, double crosses, and personality clashes. I watched the first episode. uh, I I watched a couple of Mm -hmm. Sandbaggers. You can get it on Amazon Prime, I believe, uh, but I did it through BritBox. I loved it. Now, it's very different kind of viewing from what we're used to watching, and you watched some episodes. Yeah,
1: I watched an episode, yeah.
0: A lot of meetings, a lot of meetings. <laughs> it's, um, a lot of opening doors and they just start talking. Men, 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 men yeah. are doing all the talking. Uh, the war room was just a big room with fax machines. <laughs> and, um, uh, also I loved, they had to, uh, drop two of the sandbaggers into Russia, and they literally planned the whole thing, like five guys over a map with a wooden <laughs> ruler.
1: It was we're, amazing. We're going to send a squad in. Mm-hmm. I want you to measure this very carefully with that ruler. Because <laughs> yeah. every millimeter Can you imagine? is 10,000 miles. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Somebody's going to Finland. I don't care who they think, right where the Russians are. (laughs) But if you don't measure correctly, you are in Finland. You're in Finland. Yeah. I, I searched the internet and got some free video, well, and, and the episode was only 38 minutes. We've now dis- discussed this when you showed up today, and I and you looked at me like, no, they're not 38 minutes. Robert so, yeah. Yeah, so these, <laughs> this one was edited hor- horribly, which I'm happy to hear because I can barely follow it.
0: Know- a lot of jargon, a lot of yeah. spy jargon. So
1: much chit-chat, too, by mm-hmm. the way. Un- unbelievable. Aaron
0: Sarkin without the walks. <laughs> it's just, they're sitting across from each other,
1: talking. It was back... Before cell phones and and push-button numbers. So they had to do the dial thing. Anybody out there who hasn't put their finger in it went like that and let your finger ride back. That's a good part of it. It's good for the ride back. So this guy was dialing and there was a... And he finally stops. He looks at his watch and he puts the phone down and leaves... That's the rest of us now. I'm not waiting to dial. I I can Uber over to this place faster than I can dialing it.
0: Yes. The uh, the lead guy, Neil Burnside, had two phones on his desk. Did you notice? Right. The red phone. Yes. And the regular phone.
1: Yeah. And I know Brits are cool people. They don't go off the handle quite as quickly as the rest of us.
0: No, there was not yelling
1: But still, I think when the red phone rang everybody except Brits would go, crap. <laughs> this can't be good. This it's can't never be good, good, exactly. The red phone is never good.
0: The most famous episode, which was called The Special Relationship, was a watershed in the history of spy fiction. The character Laura Dickens, the only female sandbagger and Burnside's love interest, is captured and swapped for an East German spy, during the crossover on that real bridge of spies in Germany, that's a mm-hmm. uh, Laura is unceremoniously killed by an unseen sniper. This had never happened in television before, and the outcry. For them, killing off Laura was huge. Now, this episode was supposed to be the last episode of The Sandbaggers, and Ian decided to just go out with a bang, um, because special relationship garnered so much attention. The Sandbaggers was given a season two.
1: With uh, one less actress.
0: With one less... <laughs> yeah, the, the budget went down. Yeah. But everything Ian touches is gold. Yeah. Midway through season two, Ian got the word that the series was going to go for three seasons. Bravo. Ian just... Good for you. By 1979, Ian had become the executive producer of the show. And as a gift of appreciation to cast and crew, they were given 18 days to shoot an episode in sunny Malta. Ian, who loved to travel along with his girlfriend of two years, Susan Uh, Insul decided to take a vacation while production was shooting in Malta. And upon his return, Ian had three scripts due, but he figured, piece of cake, I can handle it. (laughs) And it's Ian, I believe it. Good for Ian. Yes. On July 7th, 1979, just a few weeks shy of Ian's 39th birthday, he, Susan, and Ian's good friend, Graham Barber, an experienced British Airways pilot, rented a single-engine Rally 235 airplane in Anchorage.
1: Ah, the 235.
0: The 235. It's, it's, it's a good one. After a test flight, the trio flew towards Kodiak. The weather that evening was clear, but it was very windy in Kodiak. At 5.45 p.m., while flying northeast of the Kodiak Island, Barber sent out a distress signal saying he was losing oil pressure. The air traffic controller at the Kodiak airport relayed the call to the U.S. Coast Guard and searches were in the air within 10 minutes and over the last known coordinates of Ian's plane in 30 minutes, but they saw no sign of the aircraft. The search continued for three days, but neither the plane nor the passengers were ever found.
1: No sign of those three scripts either. We're going to cut that. We're keeping
0: it. Remember when you write to the writer's hangout podcast at gmail.com.
1: T-E-R-R-Y. That was Terry.
0: Now, I mean, really so sad. Uh, But of course, because Ian was who he is and, uh, his previous lifestyle controversy immediately began to swirl around. And there were two major theories. Well, three, um, without a trace. Ian set up the plane crash in order to defect to Russia. I could not find in any of my research reasons why Ian would defect other than, you know, this is a brilliant man. He could have been a double agent, but the fact that Susan and Graham were also involved kind of negates that. Yeah. It's, that's pretty com- uh, uh, convoluted. Yeah, it's pretty Those unlikely. three people would have also been uh, Russian spies. Right, Graham maybe, but Susan, I don't think so. Uh, who knows? The spy who came in from the cold, even though he was retired, Ian was on a mission for the British government. This is speculated because Ian was required to report to the foreign office every time he left the country, even though it had been four years since he retired. Ian also had high-end electronic equipment in his apartment in London. That's what Lawry, his brother, said. And it was not unusual for someone like Ian, who is officially retired, but still asked to do something while traveling, you know, nothing big, maybe take photographs or just report what they saw. I don't even have a movie name for it because it's just so simple. Maybe uh, The Natural. The cap for the oil was left off and yeah. when they got to where they were outside the Kodiak Islands, the plane stalled, uh, even though Graham was an amazing pilot, uh, and he probably coasted as long as he could. It went into the water. If the plane flipped, the, the chances, and I guess it had fixed landing gear, and a fixed landing oh. gear plane, when it hits the water, will flip. We'll flip. And the uh, three of them Getting out of one door, I guess uh, they were saying the door on the right would uh, be the door, uh, the only door, and the three of them getting out. Definitely a person in the back was not going to get out. And the freezing temperatures. And it is very likely that a plane could uh, sink that fast at half hour. And not leave an oil slick because-
1: No oil. No oil. And were we in a position to know where it went when it went down? It
0: was, if he gave the coordinates, there was some back and forth between Graham and uh, the uh, Kodiak uh, airport. Also, um, I should have mentioned earlier, that part of the world is filled with uh, Russian spy submarines. Wow. um, And, Russian trawlers that are actually uh, spy trawlers that you know they look like fishermen, but they're all crowded around sophisticated uh, listening
1: devices. So that supports two theories: that they picked him up, and he's still living in uh, Russia. He's still living in Russia somewhere. Or yeah, uh, they picked him up and knew he was a pain in the ass, and uh, yes, and said yes. no, yeah, yet,
0: yet, yeah. So um, in Not Even 40, all those books, all those series, uh, groundbreaking series, I wish we could still be uh, watching his movies yeah.
1: and TV shows. I think we could give him a couple extra things to do. I don't think it would slow him down.
0: That's a wrap for The Writer's Hangout. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, like, and thrive. Till we get to hang out again, keep writing. The world needs your stories. The Writer's Hangout is sponsored by the PAGE International Screenwriting Awards. Executive Producer, Kristen O'Vern. Producers, Terry Sampson and Sandy Adamitis. Music by Ethan Stoller.